Hey, and welcome to all the lovers out there. This is the How to Love a Human podcast, moderated by Dr. Candice Nicole Hargons. Follow and come chat it up some more with us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Candice Nicole and on our website, drcandicenicole.com. You will find those links in our description box. Today, the How to Love a Human podcast welcomes Tanya to the space. So sit back and join us along this journey on how to love a human. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to How to Love a Human. And I am here with Tanya Torb. How you doing, girl? Oh, so good to be with you. It is great to be with you, too. I just started our conversation with, okay, Lip. I love us. I love us. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I'm going to start with my non-researchy question first. So are you feeling human or human as fuck? Human AF. (laughs) I think I'm feeling human AF. Okay. What does that mean to you? I'm feeling all of the emotions as you move towards the end of the year. Mm. There's the definite hope of what the new year brings, but also the reality of what we have carried through this year. Mm -hmm. And as we kind of finish out the year, both in business, in the nonprofit world, in consulting, in church, um, as we look forward, there's some lessons that I want to carry with me and I don't want to miss that. And so I'm feeling all the feels. And is all the there feels. a lesson that's sitting with those feels like that you want to shout out? Because I feel you on the end of the year, you start reflecting. Yeah, I am really reflecting on when am I my most, you know, this is Coach Colleen for, for folks who know, just shout out to Colleen Elridge. When am I my most authentic mm. best self? And there are times when I'm able to reflect and get to that place of, I'm doing the mom thing well, I'm the boss doing that well, consulting. And other times I fall short. And how can you admit when you fall short and carry that um, and slow down enough to be reflective of how you move forward in that? Yeah. How do you, you know, and so I, I want authenticity in my life, but I also want my best self sometimes looks like rest. Mm. Right. And that's sometimes. authentic. <laughs> that's authentic. So I want to be in that lane. And I think sometimes busyness can get the best of me. So I'm just reflecting there. When am I my highest, my best, my most authentic self? Mm -hmm. The busyness piece resonated so deeply with me because it's seductive when it's things that you really do want to be doing, but you don't actually have the capacity to be doing. Right. Or that someone can say to you, hey, I think you're perfect for this thing, Mm. but you know, you have you already tired. Yes. <laughs> you were tired right. yesteryear. Like- <laughs> yes. Yesteryear. Yes. And some of that also looks like um, we have a thing that we do here in the office at Step by Step. Before we say yes to something, we have an acronym we use, STOP. And so the first thing that we do is we sit in silence with it. Ooh. And then the T is think. We got to think about it. Like, think about all the aspects. And that's where we talk it out. We sit down on the couch and it's like, what are how can we fail mm-hmm. so that we know what are the ways that what we need to look out for right yes. and then o is obligation are we doing this at obligation and that's a that's a real question 
listen, because the shots are fired for me right now. So right? <laughs> if I'm feeling obligated and I'm doing it out of obligation, that might not be the best. I need to acknowledge that because that might not be the best way to go. And then we pray. Mm. At the end of it all, like, let's pray. Is this really the direction we're supposed to be going? So for other people, they might not share the same faith tradition that I do. You might want to meditate on it. You might want to take a couple walks and, and figure that out. And so for us, that is how we are trying to live authentically, you know, step by step. But it is difficult, that obligation part. Look, that's the one that has my heart arrested right now. I'm like, I'm going to, first of all, the conversation is over. That was the gym. Mike <laughs> dropped. Like, uh, what other questions about that? <laughs> that right there was a whole, listen, I'm going to have to sit with that for myself. Because I got the silence piece and the thinking about it. But the obligation as a question, mm, yeah. I mean, it's just like the point you have to stop and think about it. Yeah. The hardest part for me out of that is the silence, though, because okay. I am a, like you. I think we share this. And many Black women, we're doers. Yeah. We're going to get the job done. Right. Whether or not somebody asks us to do it or not, we're going to get it done and it's going to be done in excellence. And mm -hmm. so just like st sitting in silence with it first to see what my body is saying. I'm really oh, looking yeah. towards embodiment right now as well. Like, what is my body saying? Because mm -hmm. I've been so disconnected from my body for many years. And the body connects us to our first form of knowing, our first way of knowing before we had language, all of that. So I love that that embodied practice of making decisions and not just rushing to meet obligations because people expect you to do it well and you know you can. Yes. Whew. That's exactly mm. So what are your most salient identities, like things it can include race, class, gender, but it can be anything. Like some, sometimes those are the starting places, but they don't have to be. I think one of the things that resonates in all my hats that I wear, so I am an associate pastor mm -hmm. at the United Methodist Church, um, and my role is social justice there. Yes. Uh, I am an executive director at Step by Step, where we work with young moms ages 12 to 24. So I'm a leader there. Um, and pulling the gold out of people there yeah. in that space. Um, I am also a consultant, so trying to move out of DEI work <laughs> in some ways and more into spaces that, we can talk about that, more into spaces that are holistic yeah. and move the needle. And so in all of those places and at home, I'm mom. Mm. There's some motherness mm -hmm. that comes from that. And I'm not talking about femininity or anything like yeah. that. I'm just talking about this idea of wanting to protect, yeah. um, protect space for people, protect space for myself um, in these areas where I can, like my feelings can really be shared mm -hmm. and like I can be vulnerable yeah. in those spaces and I can be like true to me in those spaces. And so I think the identity that, forms all of that for me as mom mm, okay. um and I've been like mom since I was like five years old so like <laughs> what a key identity that I carry with me that I try to nurture it and sometimes like tamper it down um, was mom one of your first leadership roles yes I think so I think in some ways I had to mom my parents mm -hmm. so uh, as a trauma response you learn yes right? How to carry others, how to anticipate the needs of others, how to be very aware of your surroundings, how to read a room. Okay. 
that, you know, I, I recognize that as two things, as a spiritual gift. And, and a trauma response. Yes. <laughs> yes. Listen, yes. he will take the things that the enemy tries to use, right? Okay. So because the I, intuition is refined. It's yes, so so much. And so I think that that's yeah, that springs up and uh, definitely from a young age. Mm-hmm. And you talked about being a leader in your professional roles and how yeah. mothering shows up in those roles. What do you say? stands out about the protector aspect of it. Cause you know, and I appreciate you saying it's not gendered, but we do gender protection. We make it masculine. You know what yeah. I mean? And it's like, yeah. it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. And so what is it about that protection element that stands out for you? Cause I think that's really important. I think my co-laborers will tell you, and I call uh, people who work with me co-laborers. So we don't have a hierarchy. I yeah. sign checks. Right. But Everyone here is just as dedicated as I am. And right. so that's important for me to say they're my co-laborers. We, we labor together. And they will tell you that anybody who tries to come for them and their time will will leave disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. um, it shows up in ways. So, for instance, if they need to be, if people are calling them to be on a Zoom, yeah. I say, is that, a, is that a good use of your time? If it's not, then say no. Mm. So, like, protecting time and allowing for space for them is really mm-hmm. important for me. And sometimes I have to look at when I do that for them, they then reflect it back to me. Well, what nice. about you? Nice. And I've never been in an environment like there where it's reflected back to me. Mm. So I had um, Kelly who works with me said to me one day, so um, you've been going pretty hard for a few weeks now and I have not seen you rest. Mm. So when are you taking a break? And she called me on it. Yes. I appreciate that so Lovingly much. called you in. Like, yeah. let me gather those edges for you. I love that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that identity, especially as a Black woman, mm-hmm. one of the ways that I, am, I try to be careful is that we, you know that they will say, as we're protector, she's an angry Black woman. Yep. Right. Um, I've had people very dear to me question that in me you seem like you might be bitter mm. and i'm like no there's a protector spirit that comes yeah. with with this because i can see i see the things mm-hmm. right not the natural and the spiritual yeah. i see those things and i need to be aware of them so it comes out at work in that way and we have this environment that is really communal care yeah yeah and you know we used to say self-care all the time and a lot of reciprocity in there yeah, and like we shut the office down for nearly four weeks for the holidays. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't use your vacation. Go be with your people. Thank Rest, you. Reset. We uh, work a four-day week. Mm, yes. So those are all things that came bubbling up out of protection for their space, their time. What we do is emotional mm. and draining and powerful. And so you protect the powerful as well. Yeah. And I think to your point about being a black woman, people bear witness to our power and forget about the need for our protection. We don't have any sense of our desire to experience that protection. So it's beautiful that you get the reciprocity of that among your co-laborers. You mentioned black womanhood. How, in what ways is that salient for you? Ooh, I get my whole life. (laughs) My whole life, when I am around people who look like me, 
and those who come from other diasporas mm-hmm. that similar to me. Um, Latanya Jones and I started a writing group together yeah. called Writing What Is. And I tell you, I love my faith journey. I love my people. I love my church. But when we get together to write, it is holy. Yeah. And all kinds of things come out of our mouths. All kinds of things come out of our writing and it's real and it's raw and it mm. is all things, things we won't, we might not even share in public, that kind of thing. But um, being in that space of recognizing spirits, recognizing spirit, like you, I know your struggle, you know mine. Uh, we speak a collective language without even speaking. Yes. I don't have to explain myself. You already know when I'm carrying it heavy, you already know um, when I need that joy and we just laugh and kiki uh-huh. and do the things um, together and we brunch and we, you know. So for me, that is the place that I am most vulnerable. Okay. And allowed to be vulnerable. Among other Black women or yeah. other women of the global majority. Yes, yes. That is the space where I can come into that space and I seek it. Uh-huh. I seek it everywhere I go. If I'm in those spaces, I'm like, where are we? Because I, that is where I feel the most me. Mm-hmm. And when I do these, when I'm, when I'm consulting, I, I often start, Carol Taylor Shem taught me this. There's no such thing as a safe place for mm-hmm. us. Thank you. Because right? I feel that wholeheartedly. So I'll be in, in places where there are facilitators that say, now this is a safe space. No, it's not. It's not a safe space for everyone. Mm-hmm. But I feel most safe in those spaces. Yeah. And I I think that we hold that and cultivate that. It's cultivation. It does not just happen. And a lot of us hope that it will just happen. But even among other Black women, it's like we are spending time together with intention to cultivate these things we need. And I didn't used to. And that has been something that has changed. I didn't used to try to cultivate it and make Mm -hmm. it a space for it in my life. I knew I needed it. And I, you know, I have friends and all of that. But to actually seek out and say every Saturday from 10 to noon, no one touches this time because this is our writing circle time. And I don't care who asks, right? If a sporting event even comes up for my kids, I'm like, guess daddy going? Because (laughs) that space has to be kept sacred. And yeah. that's going to be the most vulnerable and the most me. Mm, that is so beautiful. And I love that frame on safety versus like belonging. You may or may not be safe in all the places you belong, but you feel welcome there. You feel whole there, yes. feel like yourself there. What about other identities that you didn't immediately mention, other aspects of yourself that stand out? I really think there is the aspect of storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned writing, but not just in writing. I am a storyteller, but a story seeker. Mm, okay, what's that? I want to hear the story. I want to hear your story. I want to sit down with you and connect in that space. And that shows up in almost every aspect of my life. Yeah. Even when I'm like on the floor with my kids, I want to hear about your day. We do this every night. What has been the best part of your day? Mm. What's been the hardest part of your day? And it's gotten to the point, if I forget, my kids will remind me, mommy, you didn't ask. Because <laughs> they're saving it up. But that the stories are sacred. And yeah. the stories are our truths. And they are really how we connect. And mm-hmm. how we find darkness. Right? That is how people from disparate groups who would never talk to one another can find space. Yes. Story. Do you use like, storying in your work a lot? 
a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. Um, there is a technique that came out of Black Revolution. Um, some would say during the civil rights movement. I, st- I feel like we're still in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but um, story circles came out of that time. And these story circles, I use that a lot in a lot of my consulting, also with the moms at Step by Step, um, with friends and family to sit in a story circle and to listen. And the techniques from that are very simple, but very effective. By the time you go through, every single person has told a piece of their story Mm. and there becomes a connection in that space. It's... It's, I've never seen anything connect people faster than a story. Is that what led you to start or co-found the writing circle? Because you knew the power of stories as a healing modality? Partially. And a connecting. Okay. The other part was white supremacy. And that. (laughs) The thing you're healing from. (laughs) So we had been, both Latanya and I have been in spaces where we were writing and people would say things like, I didn't expect that to come out of you like quality writing or a story that moved them or, you know, or just unsafe situations where we weren't able to just put it out there and it had to be received in a way where we didn't have to Mm -hmm. answer for our identity within the story. And so that's why we started that. But I think that I have learned from that and hearing from others in that group. Um, We have two Indian American women, we have, um, uh, women that are Latina, we have, you know, everything is in that group. And yeah. we all have this, like, when we talk about food in our stories, or when we talk about gathering, there's these, these themes that continue to come up. We mm. talk about trauma, but we also talk about overcoming. Yeah, always. And so I think stories bring our, out our humanity. Yeah, and being a storyteller requires me to be a story seeker before I can tell a story I need to listen to others Mm. so let me ask you this did reading form an important part of your survival strategy growing up anytime growing up anytime I hear people who love a good story they usually loved a good book (laughs) anytime there was chaos going on in my household you would find me in my room with a book Listen, I ask because I know for myself. Yes, yes, yes. And still to this day, I will, you know, take, I, I, if you follow me on social media, I take pictures of the books that I'm like working through right now. And it might take me a while to work through them with all the busyness and things, but I'm seeking out that story, not just for comfort, but to understand. But I think it was definitely comfort when I was Mm -hmm. a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, My punishment was you can't go to the library. (laughs) This week. Oh, who did you like that? (laughs) Try. But if you say I can't go to the library, falling apart. It's over. Oh my goodness. Well, how do you feel about audio versus Kindle versus hard books? People usually have their camps. I'm open, but I always ask folks who I know are avid readers. I am very open. I can't do like a Kindle where I have to read it. I need like a hard book. Like I need I need a book, right? But audio has been so special for me in this time. And I don't know if you recognize this too as a mother, but our time to read has been diminished greatly. Mm-hmm. And I wondered what it was. And someone said to me, oh, because you're a mom. Yeah. And I thought, oh, is that? And she's like, yeah, I didn't really focus the same. <laughs> <laughs> so it has helped me so much to be able to listen. And it actually has become 
this space of connection with my my husband and oh, I, nice. to be able to listen to the same book at the same time we have like some of our favorite voices yes you got what are they what are they narrating Ooh, um, I didn't think about it like that okay it has been like date nights sometimes are let's 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 get to the next chapter we can't wait you know so that so I like both I, I need but I need to hold the book okay in my hand and then I also enjoy audio because there are some actors that are so they will bring a book to life and you're just like ooh. even when I read it it wasn't that good like, right because then you hear their inflection and you're like right. I heard this in a different way yeah yeah nice. love it any other aspects of identity I ask folks about ability status and age and social economic status like all of these things that's a oh that's that opens up lots of doors so ability status so i have adhd my entire family is neurodivergent mm -hmm. and so i that leads me to recognize that you can't see everyone's disability right and it leads me to fighting even more um for spaces and recognizing and noticing spaces that are unwelcoming or spaces where there's room for improvement mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. um interpretation to make sure that all are truly welcome right. so being having adhd means that i get to hyper focus on things mm -hmm. i feel like it's a superpower it can like, be that's what i tell folks yeah. like it can be it can be when you so, understand it the hyper fixation it actually really helps with consulting mm. because i sometimes i do have long projects but there are very there are many projects within yeah. the project and so you do the project is done. Then you move on to the next thing. So you can hyper fixate on a client and what they're doing and what you're, you're bringing to them and the project that you're bringing to them. And then you can just be like, okay, next. Like, so I think that helps with the longevity at my office too. Yes. It's like, we change it up all the time. You will never hear us say, well, that's the way we've, it's always been done. No. So I think ADHD really helps with that. Nice. And then I think the other one that you mentioned that clued me in was um, socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. Really grappling with that right now as I What's get. What's the grapple? So I grew up with not much and we knew it. You know, yeah. you hear some people say, you didn't have much, but we didn't know it. We knew it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was quite evident. Um, and over the years, I've been working and found some success, particularly in. in um, consulting and um, it's been kind of I was talking to some friends the other day and it's like a hard transition mm -hmm. transitioning class is an adjustment it's an adjustment that it's not really spoken of very often and so I started um, talking to some girlfriends about it and all of a sudden we had this whole realization that all of us had been yeah. grappling with that and when we talk about the ancestors and what oh. people had to go through for us to be where we're at and recognizing, I don't know if everyone does that, but recognizing that people had to sacrifice for us to be here. People had to die yes. for us to be in this space. Um, people suffered greatly. Mm -hmm. And so carrying that at the same time as stewarding well what you yeah. do have and the pressure of remembering that to steward it well. Oh. And then the other piece of, of you think the shoe's going to drop, right? Yes. I got to a certain point where I wanted to be and I am 
successful in the ways that I want to be successful. So what's going to be removed? Mm-hmm. When's it going to end? And working through that, like that's, that doesn't have to happen. Not holding your breath the whole yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good analogy. The holding of the breath. I think that's true. And then when you think about what it means to grow up in a family where financially and socioeconomically, which can be very different things, like you didn't have the resources that you needed all of the time. And then you're raising human beings and you're able to resource them in ways that weren't even uh, available to your imagination. Like that is, that is my, what I sit with every day. Like I get to afford you things that I never thought of. And what kind of human are you going to be with this? <laughs> and it's like, I want to do this, but how do I also? I don't yeah, know. My, my kids are in gymnastics and in swimming. And we were at the swimming place the other day. And I looked around. I looked over at my husband and I said, do you know, not long ago, this would not be possible for these two black babies mm. to be in this pool. Whew. That they even like close down public pools to yes. keep us from drain them people to be in the pool. They shot them all, their own selves in the foot, closed down public places that other people couldn't swim because they didn't want us there. Poured acid in the pool. Mm. And here are my babies learning how to swim without fear. Yes. I think definitely carried that fear throughout our lives, even as children. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to see that in my children. I'm I'm sitting there watching them and just it's supposed to be mundane and okay, baby, go ahead and go. And the realization came over me. And it's just another thing of recognizing to be black in this country, right? Yeah. To be brown in this country means that you can sit in a place where you shouldn't have to think about that and that comes up. Oh wow. Just a few years ago. Just a few. They couldn't even done this. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And for many of us in our parents' lifetime. In, in my mom's lifetime, yeah. So and my mom lives down the street. Like, mm-hmm. go to grandma's house and they know in her lifetime, separate drinking fountains in her lifetime, you know? Well, my dad was like, my school was desegregated while I was in school. And I was like, you're right. Like, if I'm thinking about the math and the way it maths and you grew up in Alabama, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> So to be conscious of those things. Mm-hmm. So I think that is all tied into socioeconomic status. I love what you said about that. It's not necessarily finances. Um, and for us, the, the melding of those things, mm-hmm. and recognizing that I can give my children certain things that yeah. I did not get to have, but also I want to continue to instill in them the things that we did have. Right. You know, so mm-hmm. um, I think that's just so important. Do you navigate guilt around being well-resourced now? Some people think about it like, oh, okay, well, since I have so much, since I have an abundant life in this way, like their guilt is the thing that guides them towards giving as opposed to like a sense of gratitude and generosity. And I wondered how you sit with that. It's only been the last two years. Like, So when I started my job here, I was uninsured and making $27,000 a year. And that was just a few years. It wasn't very long ago. Mm. So... It has only been recently, right, in the last couple of years that I've been able to be resourced. Yeah. And so even the, the quickness of that, not really quick, but like it did it, come yeah. consulting. I came on and I was like, oh, okay, this is a thing. Okay. Um, so no, I think I am, 
I don't want to say I'm glad, but I'm, <laughs> I'm thankful for where yes. I came from because I've always had that. You know, my mom, when she didn't have much, she was still giving. Right. And I that was my frame that. on it. I was like, no, nah, I don't feel guilty. I've always yeah, been generous in this all. way. Right. Uh, if, if there is any guilt, it might be around family that are unable to, uh -huh. you know, and so that don't live here. They're, you know, but family may, wanting to know that my family is resourced outside yeah. of this space. Um, but no, like the generosity that my mother instilled in us. I remember growing up, um, I'll never forget, there were like battered women, women who were experiencing intimate partner violence who just came and stayed on our couch. Mm -hmm. There were people moving in and out of our home. There was, well, I'm an Air Force brat. So there were GIs that would come sleep on our couch to sleep it off or whatever. Like we mm -hmm. were just a welcoming space. If somebody needed, my, my family always gave it, even if we didn't have it. Yes. And so I think that that was, I'm glad that was instilled in me because that's mm -hmm. still there. That's not leaving. Yeah. Those were the type of investments for me that just were so familiar and so much of a part of life. It was like, oh, okay. So if I have more resources and I get to do more of that, but I was going to do it, bro. <laughs> I was going to do it whether right. I was a multi-millionaire. Like, Don't we find a way? We find a way. Right. Right. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit. What does love mean to you? Mm. Oh, um, I would say it is a choice and an mm. action. A choice and an action. Okay, you got to break that down. I it is that. such a choice. When you think about where you have to be to, to be able to use that word love. Mm where you have to be in a re in relationship with people to be able to use that word love. I think I took for granted many years ago, just because you're related to someone doesn't mean that that word love is all encompassing of your relationship, right? Right. There, there can be damage, there can be trauma, there can be all kinds of things. So moving into the space of love is a choice to move into spaces of communication Mm -hmm. where there might not be um it's a choice to choose yourself yeah to love you because you cannot love other people well if you're not loving yourself well mm -hmm. so it's a choice right but it is also an action i don't ever want someone to say that they love me that doesn't show it mm. and i don't want to ever say that i love people and don't show it and so I see love in so many ways, just thinking um, just with my faith hat first um, from the Christian perspective, I am seeing people say that they love with the love of the Lord that are not loving people with the love of the yeah. Lord. It is an actual choice that they are making. Yeah. Right. That's a choice. Um, and so um, there are people that represent or say they represent the faith to which I cling to that are not in that space of love. Mm. And what does that really look like? It's a choice to treat people with dignity. Yes. And respect. It is a place to um, seek to understand and to know. And that is an action. Mm. Move in that direction is an action. What do you I think it costs them to not move in that direction if love is a core principle? 
of their spiritual tradition. Everything. Mm. I think it costs them everything, their humanity. Mm -hmm. And so there are times when I can be very angry about what I'm seeing. And there are times where I can feel complete sorrow for, look what you are missing. Yeah. You are missing it. You are missing it. And to just lament that. And then when I think about just the world in general, people who do not share my faith at all and who um, just walk in different ways, when I see the love, that just tangible love coming mm -hmm. out of them, pouring out of them for others, that they make choices to love. Yeah. And choices to lean into that and to lean into people and to lean into the hard things. Um, I learn from them. You know, when I'm walking in my faith journey, I'm supposed to know it from who I'm around and what I'm reading, right? But I see it in other places that don't yeah. have my faith tradition and I see it tangibly and well, well done. Mm -hmm. And so it inspires me. So that is love is, it's tangible it is a choice. It is an action. Mm. I love that. The choice piece of it is so core because then that means you get to decide. You have agency yes. in whether you love or don't love. Mm -hmm. What would the world look like if it loved you? If it loved Black women, if it loved mothers, if it loved people who grew up poor or like all of these aspects of your identity that you named. There would be, first of all, when you first started talking about that, the word, the words believe us. They would believe mm, us. Mm. Believe us in what? They would believe us in our stories, in our struggles, yeah. in our truth, in our history. Mm. Um, they wouldn't want to stifle that. <laughs> they wouldn't want to uphold the lie. Um, if If we were truly loved, there would be justice and justice would roll down. Mm -hmm. Right. And when I think about that, I think about justice for everyone. What does it look like to live in a just society where people have what they need and people are able to make a life for themselves? And so I think that's what it would look like mm -hmm. for me personally. It would um, just tangibly, it would look like me not having to call, you know, 15 different therapy providers for my children until I found someone who took their insurance. Yeah. Found someone who looked like them until I found someone who understands their diagnoses. Mm -hmm. um, it would not take me that long, right? If we were loved well, that would be accessible to be everyone. Plentiful, yeah. Plentiful to everyone. And on the same token, there wouldn't be so much trauma that we would have to seek that out in the ways that we would have to seek it. Right? <laughs> right. So um, just knowing, you know, we um, are very big proponents of um, bringing families back together. So we're foster and adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. and we all of the problems with the foster care system, all of the racism, all of the isms, all of the hard things, but we've wanted to reunite families. Yeah. And, recognizing sometimes that's not possible mm -hmm. the things that come with that um being able recognizing that our kids brains can be rewired mm -hmm. and knowing especially that, as children especially as children knowing that data and that research and still not being able to access services and recognize we gotta do it ourselves you know in a lot of ways yeah. so 
that it would look very different. Um, we would not have these arguments between who should be housed, who deserves housing, who deserves help. We wouldn't have borders, mm. right? So all of that, um, justice. Yeah. Justice. Can I go back a bit? Because when you talked about your journey as a foster to adoptive parent, mm -hmm. I wanted to know what that has been like for you, what led you there, just because uh, my husband and I are thinking about that as an option as well. And I think there are a lot of children of the global majority who are in the foster care system and Sometimes we do fictive kin, so, you know, we're in and out of households that yes. may not be fostering, but there's so many ways to do it. But I wonder what led you to that approach and how, you know, it seems like you're thriving in it, even though it's not easy. Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. But we we found we find ways. Um, so we I've always wanted to be a mother. Mm -hmm. Just always. I mean, that's part of that you know, since I was five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I we were experiencing infertility. Mm -hmm. um, and I made the choice at one point before we went into um, injections and money and all of that. I just said, and for myself, the choice was stop. Yes. Let's take a breath. Do I want to enter into it in that way? And started seeing, we were part of a faith community where you couldn't tell whose kids were whose. Because mm -hmm. everybody was parenting everybody yep. um and so it was like beautiful to see um but to also have a reality that there was trauma and trauma affected kids in different ways yeah working at i'm very fortunate to work where i work at step by step because i got to see first the mother's perspective uh -huh. about 25 percent of our moms have open cases with dcbs mm -hmm. so dcbs social workers are calling us and saying she needs to be in your program she needs yeah. around services she needs so being able to see it from that perspective of a mom really working hard to get her child back to get her life uh in spaces where get wrap around people to wrap around her, mm -hmm. her all of the things that the system offers the foster parent that they don't offer the parent yeah. right to bring the kid back home so i got to see that side first and my heart was like just drawn. And then the other side of it, um, being the foster parent, we went through 12 weeks of training that were not, they were so inadequate. Um, oh. <laughs> we are what we were doing. We just yeah. didn't know. And uh, so I work in a trauma informed place. I, you know, all, you know, the things, <laughs> but the but practice of the things is different from knowing them. Practice of the things is different from the knowing and they placed this three-month-old baby in our hands and the social worker walked out the door and we looked at each other like what do we do now <laughs> so much like a, a new parent of a biological mm -hmm. child like what do we do now right um the journey was um training and training and training and training but also going into it there's some people go into it because they want babies mm -hmm. we went into it knowing we wanted families to reunite uh-huh so when we got our first child they were like hey he's 30 days out from going home um can we place him with you for just 30 days he's already in another foster home he's three months old we're just gonna move him to you i'm like yeah we're like yeah that's cool yeah. not knowing that it was gonna be a long you know that was gonna be a forever home yeah we still have a relationship with that uh, family yeah and love them and um so that helped and then just seeing how many children of the global majority are in the system and how 
targeted those families are right. for removals. Yeah. Even sometimes from our own selves. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll call out of spite, mm-hmm. whatever, right? Um, and then you worry about the other children that are not from the global majority who will, no one's calling on mm-hmm. and what they're going through and the trauma they're experiencing because of other people's racism. Yes. Right. So we, when we first started doing it, the, one of the biggest impetuses was we looked at the website and it gave deference in pay to people who would take on black boys. Really? There was a differential. Wow. Um, because they were plentiful. And we thought, what if they're going to some place where no one looks like them because there's no families here in the city that are really stepping up? Like I would go to trainings and be like, where are we? I'm the only one in this training. Training to 35, 40 people. And I'm like, are you serious? Listen, when I go to a training now, because we have to do ongoing training, Mm -hmm. when I see another black woman across the room, we start doing this number. (laughs) Like, we ain't never going to park, okay? Makidana. Like, it's all. So it's very rare. Oh, my right? gosh. Um, and so, and like you said, though, there's always fictive kin. There's always, we have always taken care mm-hmm. of our cousins' kids, our sister's kids. Our grandma has always had, you know. Listen, yes. But in the system, there's just very few of mm. us stepping up in that area. And it's challenging, though. It's been really hard road when you start getting diagnoses. I'm not going to name all my kids things. Right. When you see how trauma affects every area. And when you don't know when they come into your home, they even the the workers know very little. And then it begins to unfold that you Mm -hmm. just, okay. And the safer they feel with you, the more of it you get to see. Our first year with one of our child, well, year and a half was every night, night terrors. And so I had to learn, like, how was I going to handle this and learn what the triggers were Mm -hmm. Um, and sit there. I remember just sitting there sometimes four or five hours and he would look up at me, make sure I was still there, close his eyes, look up at me, close his eyes, just wanting to know that I was going to be there. That began our, our trust. Um, the same, my husband did the same. So it, it, there's a lot involved with emotion and I don't think people know how mm-hmm. much we're unprepared for that. Do not do it. But if you are, if you know that you have the resources, you have the time, you have a flexible schedule <laughs> that you can be flexible. Mm-hmm. There's appointments. There's all kinds of appointments. You know, at one point, one of our children, we had like six different therapies. Oh, so between OT, PT, all, you know, all the things. So you have to have that time. And that is why a lot of people don't do it. Because they can't make the room based on how their life looks. And there's a stipend that goes along with it that is not adequate. No. So you have to have some resources. To you can't even be thinking the stipend is going to be the Because that's not going to be. If y'all that are listening here, nothing else. You it's not adequate, okay? So you're gonna have to put in on it. Um, but it's worth it. It's worth yeah. it. Yeah, thriving. Um, but we still have things that we're always gonna go through. Yeah. So what identities in others do you sometimes struggle to love? What was the sh- <sighs> I think 
the struggle is often with right now there's a real struggle with people who are part of my faith community i mean just what i said earlier mm-hmm. where i'm not seeing where i'm seeing things that they're saying about people that are not biblical yep about people groups yes about making america great again it's never been great for everybody yeah <laughs> and not acknowledging that it's been a struggle that's been a big struggle for me, for people that I've like, been in community. Um, I used to live in Virginia. That's where I grew up mostly. People oh, what part? Hampton Roads. Yes. And Franklin, Virginia, a little small town. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I know just growing up there, I could just walk down the street and somebody's yelling the N-word out, the, you know, the window at me, just like whatever. Um, so I grew up there and I... Um, had a faith community that was tight, prayed together, loved on one another. But then when all of these things started happening over the last eight years or so, I just started seeing them say things where I'm like, what? Yeah. And not recognizing my humanity, Mm. but saying that you love me, not recognizing the struggle, but you love me and being unwilling to. And how are they defining love? I, that's why I always ask that question because I'm like, in what ways are you defining love that you think you get to use the word? It's esoteric. Mm. Um, and I am not, you know, my husband and I have very different politics. Um, I am one of those people who has always been kind of a live and let live. Type mm-hmm. of that's just always been me. And so I've never judged anybody's political party. There are people in <laughs> there are people in different political parties that people think, you know, whatever. Um, anybody can be evil. <laughs> Doesn't matter what political party you're part of, and and all major parties have problems. And yep. so I've never been one to be like, oh, somebody's this or somebody's that. That I'm not. I'm not here for it. I've always been. I don't care about your politics. I want to know how you treat people. Right. And what I'm seeing is just disgusting. And so I'm really struggling with that, like a lot. Yeah. Um, and been praying for years and in therapy, talking to my therapist about it and just like still treating people with the love that they're not treating me. Mm-hmm. And that is hard. And some other, you know, some of my friends of the global majority <laughs> are like, girl, why? <laughs> I'm going to save my energy. <laughs> Just like be done with that. Girl, why? <laughs> I'm like, that is, I am called to be a peacemaker. That's just yeah. who I am. That's part of the core of me. Now, I'm not going to stand there as a peacemaker and let somebody like spit in my face and put, you know, I'm not going to be abused. Right. But I do try to build bridges. Mm-hmm. Be built. And we and need it, people who build the bridges, people right. who walk over them <laughs> and say, all right, now. I can bring you over. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. There are a lot of parts we get to play. And in that too, recognizing what are the spots in me that I am missing too. So if I'm having a hard time understanding that person, what am I, what am I missing? And sometimes it is like, okay, let's break bread. Mm-hmm. Other times my safety's at jeopardy. I'm not breaking bread with you. Yeah. So, um, and, and my, I have been stalked by someone who used to go to my church in Virginia. Oh my gosh. Stalked because I said Black Lives Matter. So 
for me, and, and then, you know, called everything but a child God in my, mm-hmm. my inbox, you know, and just trying to explain my story. And so that- And they don't want to hear it. The other thing that's been hard, you know, I've been writing this book for a while about radical hospitality and mm-hmm. talking a lot about, you know, the way that our home, especially before the pandemic, was very open to people. Yeah. Anybody, we had a weekly breakfast. Yeah. Anybody, anybody from sex workers to the mayor walks in the door. Like it just is this place where people can just be and connect yeah. with one another. And just I share stories about that. Well, my neighborhood started to change. Mm-hmm. I'm in an incredibly gentrified neighborhood. Yeah. So it went from folks who sit on the porch and invite folks over and um, people who wave and say hello to people who drive in their driveway, get out of their car and go right in their house. Don't speak. And so that's another part. I'm actually, my husband, I was like, I can't finish the book. Cause like at the, I will finish the book, but yeah. I'm trying to figure out how, now to be radically hospitable to people who don't want the hospitality. <laughs> oh, what does oh, that look like? Yeah. So I'm I'm actually wading through that right now and trying to figure what does that look like um, to be radically hospitable, and it's transformational connection. Mm-hmm. Like that's what that is for me. Um. So what? How? When you connect and you transform one another by connecting, what are the ways that I can do that with people who are not seeking um, to be neighbors? Right. They're seeking to love their home, but not necessarily where their home sits. Uh, and they're sitting in their homes waiting for the neighborhood to change into something that they will then hope to engage. And some, in fact, are actively working against people who don't have what they have, who didn't have the money to flip it. Mm-hmm. And so there was a... a now we call it code enforcement. <laughs> code enforcement. There's an organization that came in the neighborhood that really was looking at a property and they went so hard against that organization and many of us organized and tried to get neighbors that said, yes, we want it here. No. And the things that they said were vile about who are unhomed or people who are having a hard time. And I'm like, these are our neighbors. And they were here before you. They were here before you. Some of whom who come sit down and have breakfast with me. Mm -hmm. And, And you're riding into the back of your house. You don't know. Right. And so those, those personalities, those types of folks I'm having a hard time connecting with and I'm yeah. about the story, right? So I want to hear their story. But how do you hear someone's story who's not telling it? And mm. do I just try to do a one-on-one? I don't know. So I'm trying to figure out like, what does that look like to connect that? Mm. Well, I have one more question. What do you love most about you? I love that I actually grapple with these questions that you're asking me like Mm -hmm. they are the things that go through my mind at night because I I truly want to connect in humanity I truly be a peacemaker I truly want to hear stories and share stories um and so that part of me is the part that I hope that people see Mm -hmm. is that that connector, that peacemaker, that storyteller, that story receiver. I want to give people that same respect that often is not afforded me in this skin that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that those are the things that I love about me is that I'm grappling with that. And um, 
I love also that I'm a connector. I love to connect people. I love, you know who you should speak to? You know who you should, let me, girl, let me take you over here and tell you, you know who you need to know. I love that. Yeah. Connecting people and watching the spark happen. Because you knew they were going to hit it off. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I love that. And I think also I'm a I'm a learner. I want to continue to learn. I'm reading a lot of Adrian Marie Brown right now. Yeah, she had a whole vibe, like a whole vibe. Just this emergent strategy. Mm -hmm. I went to, Do you realize that was you the whole time? It's like this was the word for how I've been operating. <laughs> yes. So that emergent strategy is how I think, like the ADHD, all the identities that you asked about, ah. all of it comes together and this embodiment that I've been working on of embodying the things, all of it comes together and who I am. And so I am very excited about having found like the framework mm -hmm. that I'm exploring right now. So I'll always be a learner and I always want to be emergent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I love about me. And that is how to love a human. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. You dropped some nuggets, some gems, some uh, mics, everything. I can't wait. To <laughs> Are there I any things you, you want to share um, your social media or any work that you have going on that you want to highlight? Absolutely. I would love for people to head over to sbslex.org. That's step-by-step. Let me tell you, these young women between the ages of 12 and 24 who are raising phenomenal children yes. while raising themselves in some ways, yes. there's nothing more powerful. And I want y'all to support them. I want mm -hmm. to see people sponsor them. I want to see um, good giving is coming up in, in Kentucky. I want to see people to give. Um, Donate the money. This year, we hired one of our former graduates who graduated from the University of Kentucky. So she's on the staff now and she's a young mom. And uh, I want to hire more. Yes. Help me do that. Yes. Um, and then as far as consulting, you can see me at uh, tanyatorp.com. And, and it's right I'm, here. Right here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in working with companies and organizations that are thinking about um, transforming philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Oh, the ways uh, in which philanthropy operate operates is not equitable. And so at all, because your networks look very different financially, very different. There's a lot of studies out. I could talk about that for days on especially black executive directors and how few grants and opportunities we get um, and how there's just not a lot of people working on that, especially yeah. Um, so uh, I, I'm interested in that and participatory grant making um, I do a lot of that and then there's this um, I was just kind of talking about anti-authoritarianism mm -hmm. and so I'm working with some groups and organizations right now on, on anti-authoritarianism and how to bring people together around that and yeah. listen to our voices how can we lift that even more um, I don't want to see um, the tide turn in ways that are not healthy for the future. And it so easily could, like we're really at the tipping point. Yeah, we are on a knife's edge right now. Mm. And so, um, yeah, those are the things that I, I work on that I'm thrilled to work on. Well, thank you so much, Tanya.